I'm going to pray for us. We'll jump back into Mark here. And so hopefully you've downloaded the app or found it in your Bible by now. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to um, open your word with these folks. You've given such a great uh, word to us in the scriptures. And there's so many things that we could look at. But today I believe you've led us to a specific passage in Mark. And I pray you'd speak to each one of our hearts and that your presence would be made known, that you'd do something supernatural as my words go out, that you would have a spiritual conversation with the hearts of each person that will hear them by your power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for those that don't know you, that need to know your love and experience your love today. I pray that you just wash over them in an amazing way with your love and they would feel your compassion. They would sense your love. They would know your kindness and that you would draw them to yourself. And I pray for those that have experienced your love, that you'd grow us in our capacity to love others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today is Valentine's Day. I hope that's not news for you. If it is news for you, gentlemen, pretend like you knew that, so don't act shocked right now. I know for some people, when you hear that it's Valentine's Day, you think to yourself, oh, that's awesome. These kind of smile comes to your face. For other people, you're not as fond of Valentine's Day for various reasons. I know one married couple that I'm friends with, they love each other. They hate Valentine's Day. They think it's a Hallmark holiday that was designed just to sell candy and to sell cards and all that stuff. For other people, some of you may view Valentine's Day as an opportunity to express your love to someone that you think is significant in your life. What better way to do that than to buy a card written by someone you've never met and to give it to the person who's the most important person in your life? And so in some in-depth sermon research this week, I hopped on Google and I started looking at what are some things that get said in Valentine's Day cards. And it's interesting the different dynamics. People try to use words to express love and some are incredibly romantic and some are, um, I don't want to sound like a downer, but like incredibly realistic. Some are self-centered. I read one card that said this, I love you almost as much as I love myself. Wow. The guy wasn't taking a selfie as he, said, as he wrote the card. But I, and then I thought, wait, is that biblical? Because you're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't think they, they didn't put a verse on it. It wasn't a Christian card. They were just being selfish. Another card I read had a dose of realism. It said, there is no one else in the world I'd rather lie in bed next to and look at my phone. I thought, well, that's stupid. Hey, but wait, we do that. Why do we do it? We know it's stupid, but it's realistic. And so I thought that card was noteworthy. There are some cards uh, that try to express unconditional love in a semi-humorous way. They say, I still love you. And then there's a picture of something annoying that someone might do. I still love you even if you do wear socks with your sandals. I still love you. It's, you know, love is patient. Love is kind, right? You see all that in 1 Corinthians 13 that Matt was reading a little bit ago? And, but I still love you even though you do annoying things. This is essentially what that card says. Some people get poetic. Roses are red, violets are blue. You say something sweet, and it's got to rhyme with blue. Do, to, you, new. You get the idea. You don't have to be a poet. You can do this stuff. And then some people just try to go big with their words. And so I've got a couple here. Uh, One said, I do not think often. I do not think much. But when I do, I think of you. I read that and thought, if someone gives you this card, you've got to question the person who's giving you the card. That is strange. How about this one? A day without you is a day without sun. A night without you is a night without moon. A life without you is a life without life. Huh? What is a life without life? Like, that doesn't even make sense. But I think the person trying to take words and use the biggest words they can use to communicate the love that they have for someone. Have you ever done that? Maybe it's not with a romantic love. I do it even with my kids. Sometimes when I'm tucking my kids in at, at bedtime, I'll say, I love you more than, and then we get in this contest back and forth of who loves the other one more. 
And so I think we read a book that had some of them in it one time, The Grain in the Mill or something like that. I said, I love you more than the sky is blue. And then my kids will say back, you know, I love you more than there's sand on the seashore. And I'll say, I love you to the moon and back. And I'll say, I love you to the moon and back twice. I love you to the moon and back a thousand times. I love you to the moon and back a million times. Infinity. The very fact that we're using words puts limits on our love. Can you imagine what a love without limits even looks like? That's why Mark wrote the passage that we're going to read today. So we could get a look at what love without limits looks like. And so today I want you to ask yourself the question, what does love without limits look like? Have I experienced it from God? Maybe from another person with flesh on? And do I demonstrate it to others? For those of you who can say yes to the first question, I've experienced that love. Do you demonstrate it to those that are in your life? So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Remember what's happening in Mark. We started uh, several weeks ago, about a month ago, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, this is the good news about Jesus Christ. And so then the question is, then who's this Jesus? And that's what Mark shows us then through the next section of the the whole book here. He showed us this Jesus is worthy for you to leave everything and follow him, just like Peter and Andrew and James and John did. He shows us that Jesus has so much power. He's got power over any bondage in your life. He can set you free. He can set you free from demonic bondage. We saw in a passage. He can set you free from alcohol. He can set you free from pornography. He can set you free from whatever would hold you in bondage, your anger, your jealousy. And we saw that he has the victory in every spiritual battle. We saw last week he's got power over disease. And so what ends up happening in the passage last week is Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, And then a whole bunch of people start coming, and he starts healing a whole bunch of people. He starts healing a bunch of diseases. Now what's happened is Jesus has become incredibly popular. And what we're going to see in verses 35 through 39, he goes off on his own and he prays. There's only three times that he prays in the book of Mark. All three times, interestingly enough, it's in the dark. All three times there's incredible pressure, tension, and great temptation in his life. All three times, one is in the middle of the book, one's at the end of the book, one's right here. All three times he's tempted to be the king without going to the cross to be the Messiah without experiencing the suffering. Let's look at it with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Even Jesus went to the Father in times of great temptation. Something to be learned just in that. Simon and his companions went to look for him. The language there actually is they were hunting for him. They were diligently seeking Jesus. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages. Because he's so popular, all these people here. Let's go somewhere else. They think I'm a miracle worker so I can preach. Jesus didn't come to be a miracle worker. He claimed to proclaim a message, a message, remember, of repentance, of turning from your sin to the kingdom of God because the Messiah is here, the one that can set you free is here so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Verse 39, So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Verse 39 is a summary verse. Matthew, you can read in Matthew's account of this section of Jesus' ministry. It goes on for weeks. There's lots of stuff that happens. And he just says here, he went out, he was preaching in a bunch of synagogues, driving a bunch of demons. He continued to do the stuff that he was doing. And then Mark tells us this one story in verses 40 through 45, which we're going to focus in on today. Of all the stories Mark could pick, Jesus performed hundreds, maybe thousands of miracles, Healed hundreds, maybe thousands of people, cast out demons. Hundreds, maybe thousands of demons. It's not all written down in the Bible. Out of all the stories you could pick, he picks this one. In fact, this one is so important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write this story down. Out of all the stories that could be picked. 
because it's a story that demonstrates a love without limits. Look at it with me. Verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him, Jesus, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be cleaned. Immediately, this wasn't a slow process, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him on his way, away at once with a strong warning. Listen to this warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. How do you get healed from leprosy and not tell anybody? But go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Verse 45, instead, he went out and he began to talk freely. He's disobeying Jesus from day one. This is not a good start. Spreading the news, as a result, this is key, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. People are coming from all over. You healed a leper? People are coming from all over the place. What we see here in this passage is a demonstration of a love without limits. If you want to see love without limits, you have to look at the life of Jesus Christ. He demonstrates it here in this passage, and we're going to look at some characteristics of love without limits, and what you see, one of the things that you see here, here's this guy, he's a leper. That means he wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. He was not allowed, certainly, to approach a rabbi, a holy man, but here he comes within distance that he could touch Jesus, and he cries out for help. Why is he so bold? Why is he so audacious in this passage? And it's because a love without limits is an attractive love. A love without limits is something that draws you, it allures you, it's attractive. A love without limits is an attractive kind of love. And you think about what is it that makes something attractive? And marketers try to figure this out, right? Like they want the commercial to make you think you need something, want something, draw you into something. I heard a comedian one time do a bit where he was talking about how car dealerships sell cars. And he joked about the fact that car dealerships tie balloons to cars. So think about that. You're like a, a five cent thing tied to a 30 some thousand dollar, 20 some thousand, however much cars cost. He's buying some car that's out there. And people buy the cars. He said, if, if, if this didn't work, people would stop tying balloons. But for some reason, people must drive home from work and look over and see a balloon and think, I'm going to buy whatever's attached to that. It must work. At least they're trying to draw attention in there. But what is it that makes you attracted to something? You see something, you want it. There's something maybe that fills a need or a desire, a want that you have. And Jesus, there's no denying, throughout the Gospels, he's incredibly attractive to some. He repels others. He's attractive to those who realize they have a need and he can meet that need. So many people are coming to Jesus because they want to be fixed or they want to be fed. And here's this guy, he has leprosy, and certainly he wants to be cleansed. Certainly he doesn't want to have leprosy anymore. But I think, when I study this passage, there's more to it than just the healing. I think he's drawn more than just to the power, and you see it in what he says to Jesus. If you're willing, you can make me clean. There's no doubt about the power. He's drawn to the love. But in order to understand this passage, you must put yourself in the place of the leper. So try and imagine what it was like to be the leper. And we don't know a ton about this guy. We don't get his name. We don't know exactly how long he's had this. But Luke, who's a doctor, shares a little bit more with us about his leprosy. Uh, Luke is a physician. He writes the gospel account in the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered, or some translations say filled, with leprosy. It's more of a medical diagnosis. And so this guy doesn't have an early onset case of leprosy. 
And what you find out when you read the Bible, and Leviticus, you can do this on your own, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 describe all the various kinds of leprosy. And leprosy meant a lot of different stuff in the Bible. It could mean psoriasis. It could mean that you had mold on your skin. It can mean certain types of rashes. It can mean all kinds of things. But perhaps what this man had was what's modern day oftentimes referred to as Hansen's disease. That's modern day leprosy. And it was thought at this time that when you had leprosy and that kind of leprosy, it was incurable, that only God could cure leprosy. There was no real cure. And so when you got it, it was a sentence. And what did it mean? Well, at least think about what it meant physically. Physically, oftentimes you see pictures of lepers. If you'll Google pictures of lepers, what you'll find is they'll have like spongy tissue on their face. There'll be scars. They'll look deformed. They won't oftentimes have eyebrows or eyelashes. Um, some will lose their noses, their fingers. Will oftentimes their hands will become stubs. Their feet will become stubs. And what was believed in Bible times was that it was highly contagious and that it was a fungus that would eat away at your body. More recently, a doctor named uh, Dr. Paul Brand had found out, and he's written some books with Philip Yancey. Uh, he's found out that... Uh, Leprosy is actually, in almost every case, is not a fungus that eats away at your body, but it's something that numbs your body. It removes your capacity to experience pain, which a lot of people would think, well, wow, that'd be great to not experience pain, but what we don't realize is that pain is God's gift, a warning system to us that things are wrong. And lepers don't have that. And so what Dr. Brand figured out, he had 19 plus years uh, serving in India with lepers and, and leper colonies there. And then he came to the United States, the only leper uh, place, the, a lepertorium, I think it was called, in uh, Louisiana, where he worked the rest of his career there. And in his 19 years in India, what he ended up discovering is he'd see his, his patients do things that would hurt themselves. And then they wouldn't be hurt, but they'd come in the next day, and most doctors just thought it was because of the leprosy. Like he saw one guy drop a potato into a fire, like a big pit of fire, stick his hand right into the fire, grab the potato out, and then rescue the potato so he could eat the food. And he knew the next day he was going to have to deal with the blisters that were all over that man's hands. But because he saw him stick his hand in the fire, he realized that the blisters weren't from leprosy. It was from the fire. One time he was trying to unlock a shed. It had a rusty uh, padlock on it, and he couldn't get it. A little 10-year-old malnourished boy came running up, said, can I try? Turn the key, open it, no problem. And Dr. Brand looked at him and couldn't figure it out. And then he saw blood dripping from his thumb and he realized he had turned it and didn't feel the pain that tore through his tissue, the fat on his finger, all the way to the bone and the joints in his finger. He just couldn't feel pain. Had another guy that was working in a garden, was shoveling, and he saw this blood running down the shovel and he couldn't figure out why. And he went up to the man, he took the shovel and had a nail sticking out of it right where he was putting his hand. The guy didn't even know it was there. And so people hurt themselves is how come they get disfigured and deformed, oftentimes walk with limps because they'll twist their ankle or tear a tendon in their foot and they don't know it. They just start walking differently. They never rest it so it can heal. And so people start destroying themselves physically. But what Dr. Brand couldn't figure out was he couldn't figure out how come they would lose limbs and lose fingers. But remember, he's in a third world country. He's in India here. What would happen is oftentimes these leprosy patients, they'd go home and at nighttime, they would just wake up and parts of their fingers would be gone, parts of their nose would be gone, parts of their toes would be gone. And Dr. Brand found out rats were eating them. And so he started sending his leprosy patients home with cats. What a blessing cats can be. Can you imagine having parts of your body eaten off at night? That's what was happening. It wasn't that a fungus was eating away. Was there was, they weren't experiencing any pain and they were literally destroying themselves. Lepers would go blind because they wouldn't blink. Their eyes would dry up and they wouldn't feel the pain of that. They'd just stop seeing. Some would wash their faces with scalding water. Their lips would fall off. They'd lose their nose. They'd blind themselves. That's just the physical. The physical is not the worst part of this disease. It gets worse with the social aspect. Social aspect is you were required to live outside the town. 
In fact, in, in the Bible times, if the city had gate, uh, walls on it and had a gate, you weren't even allowed to enter. So cities like Jerusalem, you couldn't go there. So you couldn't worship. You couldn't go into a home or else you'd make everybody unclean. You weren't even supposed to stand underneath a tree. If anybody came near you within six feet, you were supposed to get away from them. You couldn't get within six feet of people. If it was windy outside, the rule changed from six feet to 150 feet. And so try and imagine being this guy. Physical deformities, you don't feel any pain, you're destroying yourself. But then the day that you find out from the priest that you have leprosy is the last day you're talking to your family. So you say goodbye to your spouse from six feet away. And you'll never hold your kids again. And if you see them grow up, it will be from a distance as you watch them. You will never hold them again. You're done having conversations. You're an outcast. But that's not the worst part. The worst part's not the physical, it's not the sociological, the worst part is the religious. Like I said, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 describe leprosy. In Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, we'll just read you two verses from there, it says this, the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes as a sign to others that you have it. Let his hair be unkept, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean! Verse 46, as long as he has the infection, and by the way, it was incurable, only God could cure it, as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. So not only alone, not only can you not come within six feet of anybody, within 150 feet of anybody if it's windy outside, but anytime somebody comes around, you have to yell, unclean, unclean. And it was believed that the cause of leprosy was sin. Specifically, many people believed it was slander. So publicly saying something bad about someone else when they're not there. So you may as well have been yelling out, slanderer, slanderer, and people thought it was contagious. This was not an illness. This was a sentence. This was not just something that happened socially. It wasn't just something that was a disease that you had. This was your identity. And so can you imagine having to yell out the worst thing about yourself anytime someone else came by you? You can't be by anybody. You're not supposed to be by people the rest of your life, but if somebody starts coming towards you, and so you have to live in isolation and hear all the lies that you hear when you're in isolation. And all those thoughts that the enemy puts in your head. And you don't get human contact, you don't get, but if somebody does come by, then you have to tell them, a slanderer, slanderer, unclean, unclean. Maybe an abortionist, abor you know, if you had an abortion, a murderer, yell out, I'm adulterer, I'm a pervert, I'm, I'm a liar. Can you imagine that? Whatever your thing is. What's the worst thing you've done? If you had to yell that out every time someone came around, can you imagine what it was like to be this guy, to experience the physical pain? Oh, wait, there's no pain, just the deformity. The way that people look at you, that's the pain. The social ostracism. The religious outcast. You must live alone. You must live outside the camp. And if anybody comes by, unclean, unclean. Can you fathom that? I hope you can fathom that because Mark's point in writing this passage is you're the leper. You're not Jesus in this story, by the way. You can't heal leprosy. You are the leper. Well, see, what leprosy was in the Bible was a picture of sin. It's more than skin deep. It does desensitize you to the, the, the destructive things in your life. It isolates you. The, the, the list goes on and on about the symbolism of it, but what you end up seeing is sin throughout the Bible 
is a picture of, or leprosy is a picture of sin. Uh, Kent Hughes talks about, in his commentary on, on Mark, about how all the miracles of Jesus are actually parables to teach us truths about Jesus. And so what you see is like when Jesus calms the storm, that Jesus has the power to calm and give peace in your heart. Then when Jesus heals blind eyes, he's showing he can illuminate your heart. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he's showing he's the bread of life. He's the only one that can nourish your soul. He's the only one that can satisfy you. He's teaching spiritual truths to these things. When he heals a leper, he's showing he can cleanse your sin. That's one of the reasons why when you look at the Bible, the Bible never talks about, never talks about leprosy being healed. It talks about it being cleansed. If you have a copy, go back to the verses. Six verses we just read. Four times the word cleanse is used in six verses. Now, it wants to talk about being healed. The man comes to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, will you make me not better? Will you make me clean? And then Jesus says, I'm willing, be clean. Then in the NIV in verse 42, it says that he was cured. But the actual word there, the Greek word is cleansed. And then later in verse 44, when Jesus is giving him instructions to go to the priest, he doesn't go to the priest for his healing. It says for your cleansing so you can be clean. What leprosy is, is a personification. It's a picture of our sinfulness. Can you imagine if someone could see into your heart, into your sinfulness? Because oftentimes what we do is we, we, we make ourselves believe that we're less sinful than we are. Can you imagine if we could see that? There's a movie out right now. It's, uh, I think it's on DVD now um, called Inside Out. It's a kid's movie. Uh, it tries to teach kids about emotions. We have four girls in my house, and so I'm trying to do everything I can to learn about emotions and at our house, we watch it. I actually enjoy the movie myself. So even if you don't have kids, I'd, I'd recommend checking this movie out. And what they do is they go in the life of some little girl, and she has these different personifications of her emotions inside of her head. And so they've got these characters. So there's a character named Joy, and she's yellow. And when she's in charge of life, everybody's happy. And then there's a sadness. She's blue. When she touches things, they get sad. And then there's anger. He's red, dude. And then there's disgust, who's green, who comes on and gets control whenever broccoli comes around, which I think is brilliant. Don't post that on my Facebook, okay? I don't want broccoli either. People went crazy with cauliflower. I told them I don't like, I don't like either one. But you know what character they don't have? They don't have sin. And why? And we go, oh, it's Hollywood. They don't talk about sin. You know, if you had sin as a character, it wouldn't be a kid movie anymore. They couldn't want it. It'd be too scary. Can you think about if we could see the depth of our depravity? Like just starting at the surface level of the little sins that we do, like white lies that we think that we're doing for the sake of someone else, and then you start to peel back the motives, and you start to see, no, it's really selfish. It's really pride-driven, or it's really selfish ambition, and then eventually how we objectify people, and we use people to climb the corporate ladder, or for our own lustful advantages, for, and then you start seeing your anger, and you start seeing our own hurt, and our own shame, and our own guilt, and our slander, and our lying, and our adultery, and the hatred that we have towards certain people, and, and we start to see that, you know what it would look like? It'd look like this guy. He's the characterization. He's the personification of your sin. So in order to understand this, you've got to understand the leper. Because that's what's inside in us. He's a picture of our own corruption. And he cries out, unclean, unclean. You see, the people that are attracted to Jesus are the ones that actually realize how unclean they are. The ones who reject, there are people that are not attracted to his love. They nail him to a cross, they kill him. And he says in a couple chapters, we'll see in the next chapter, he says, I didn't come for righteous people. There's no such thing as a righteous person. There's people that think they are. 
They're the ones that nail him to the cross. They're the ones that turn him over, accuse him of falsely claiming to be God when he clearly is because only God can cure leprosy. Charles Spurgeon used to say that we love our leprosy. That's the problem with us as people who profess to be believers. Because we don't want hell, but we love our leprosy. And what he meant was our sin. And so it's like if we, loving our leprosy, is like, I want to, God, I want you to send me to heaven, but I don't want to give up my weekends. And I want to sense your presence in my life, except when I turn the lights off and the computer on. And I want, I want you there, and I want people to know that I love you, except when I want to be a jerk, and I want to gossip, and I want to slander, and I want to lie, and I want to do my stuff. And we cultivate our sin, and what we need to do is see it as unclean and realize we have to be cleansed. And you know what Jesus says about that? Through the one whom he loved, John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that he is faithful. If we confess, do you know what it means to confess your sin? It doesn't just mean to say, I made a mistake. To confess your sin means you see it the way God sees it. God sees it as unclean. If we confess our sin, he is faithful based on the life he lived. Not what we have to do to work it off, not to be good. He is faithful. He is just. He will forgive our sins and purify or cleanse us from our unrighteousness. He will cleanse you, but you have to realize you need to be cleansed. This man knew he needed to be cleansed. You need to experience the cleansing of Jesus. Let me tell you something. It's for everyone. Anyone who will acknowledge that they're unclean and they need it. Do you need it? Confess your sins. He is faithful. He is just. Not because you are. Not because you did the right thing. He will cleanse you. He will wash you. He will restore you. Immediately this guy gets healed. Guess what? I wonder if his nose grows back. I wonder if all of a sudden he can see and he couldn't see. He's got fingers and he didn't have fingers. Old things pass away. New things come. You are a new creation. I wonder if it was an exact picture for this guy. And here's another question. How did this guy even hear of Jesus? You have to live alone, in isolation, outside the... How did he even hear about Jesus? We have YouTube and Twitter, and we can't get the gospel all around the world, like today. I don't know how that doesn't happen, but it doesn't happen. And here's Jesus, no technology. Jesus didn't have an iPhone. I don't know if you knew that or not. He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have any of that stuff. And somehow, a guy who has no contact with any other humans knows that he's so bold that he's going to go after Jesus because here's what God's plan is to reach the world, a love without limits. And it's attractive to everybody who realizes they need that kind of love, everybody who realizes they're unclean, everybody who realizes they have a need that only Jesus Christ can meet. And so what does Jesus say to his disciples? You love like I love. This is how they're going to know you're my disciples. If you love, not if you go to church enough, not if you study your Bible enough, not if you can quote the right verses, you love the way that I love. How did Jesus love? Selfless, sacrificial love. You love as I loved you. That's a love without limits. I saw a video this week of a guy that went on a New York subway, and there was a homeless guy. It was 45 degrees out in January is when the video took place. And uh, this guy went on the subway and saw a man, a homeless man sitting there who was shivering and clearly not in good health. And when I read about it, it said that all the other people had moved because he smelled bad and they were scared of him. This guy gives him the shirt off his back. I think we have a picture of it that we can show you. The guy literally took his shirt off and puts it on this guy. The guy couldn't even put the shirt on himself. He lifted his shivering arms, and the man put the shirt on him. And a uh, great story, but the point isn't the story. Here's the thing that got me. Well, the video that I watched was on Facebook. had 17 million views. I, I watched another place that reported that there was a video. I think it got pulled down off the Internet that had 42 million views. Same, same video. Why are people watching that? Why do millions and millions of people take time out of their day to watch this? Let me tell you, because there's something attractive about a love that puts someone else first 
at its own detriment and sacrifice. And that's the kind of love that Jesus loved us with and has planned to get the gospel out. Not that it's wrong to use Twitter or to use YouTube, is to use people who genuinely demonstrate this. That's why when you look in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, God's adding to the number daily those who are being saved. Wait a minute. They're coming to follow a guy who was crucified? Why would they do that? And you look in Acts chapter 5, it's interesting. People were not eager to sign up. They weren't wanting to be members of this church. So they wouldn't join. They, they saw what was happening, but they didn't want to join. What weren't they wanting to join? A group of people that were putting their life on the line. But then there were people that were coming daily, and they were being saved. They were joining what was so attractive that people would risk their lives for it is that they saw, and you look at the early church, an authentic love. And so then I asked myself about Southbridge. What would it take for genuine lost people? I'm not talking about Christians that just haven't been going to church or Christians that moved here from Virginia or Florida or Pennsylvania or wherever. Then when Christians are looking for a church, they want to know, like, where's the best nursery and who does the Bible studies I like and is it close to my house and all that stuff. But what would it take to, like, attract Real lost people. Like, you know some. What would it take in that person's life for them to come to Christ, to want Christ, or to want to come here? Let me tell you what it would take. It would take them seeing authentic, attractive love without limits, and that's God's plan to get the gospel out. They'll know you're my disciples because you love and that love is attractive. A love without limits is not only attractive, a love without limits, and this point almost sounds redundant for me to even say it out loud, a love without limits is unrestricted, or it's unbound. It doesn't have boundaries on it. A love without limits is an unrestricted kind of love. Do you think about this, not just from this guy's perspective when he comes and approaches Jesus, but from Jesus' perspective, and what he does in this passage. Every rabbinical rule would, is broken by Jesus. And if he touches this guy, which he does, then Jesus is supposed to become unclean. But Jesus' holiness is contagious. He makes this guy clean. If Je what, what should happen by a normal holy man, a normal rabbi, a normal teacher of the law, you say, this guy's breaking the law. But Jesus supersedes the law and fulfills it because he loves the way the law is supposed to point us to love. And so he, he goes beyond all the regulations, all the restrictions, and loving this guy. Look at what happens. Go back to verse 40 and 41 with me. A man with leprosy, and remember Luke said, filled with leprosy, came to him and begged him on his knees. And his question is, are you willing? If you are willing, you can make me clean. Notice he doesn't say, can you make me clean? He doesn't doubt Jesus' power. He doesn't say, if you can make me clean, like the guy in Mark 9, if you can help. See, isn't it sometimes easy to believe that God is powerful? Like he created the world. He can part the Red Sea. He can cast out a demon. But isn't the real question, does he care about me? Does he care about you? Does he care about your pain and your needs and your hurt and your temptations and your struggles? And Mark answers that with a resounding yes in verse 41. Verse 41 says, filled with compassion. Just as this man was filled with leprosy, Jesus is filled with... Compassion means that he feels this man's pain. That's what it is to have compassion. You put yourself in the place of that person, you feel what they're going through. And so Jesus is feeling what it's like to experience this man's deformities. You know, Jesus gets beaten to the point where he's not recognized as a human. So he knows this man's pain. 
Jesus knows what it's like to experience How many? What were the thoughts that went through this man's head? Oh, I should, this guy can do it, but then I shouldn't. I'm going to get rejected. It's going to be worse. And How many times did he doubt himself? How many times did he question about even approaching Jesus? And Jesus knows his temptations. Jesus himself has just experienced temptation. If there's any other way. He could be the king without going to the cross. He knows that. And he knows your temptations. And he knows the pain and the social ostracism this guy's experienced. If everyone else deserts you, Jesus, I'll be there. Oh yeah, where are you? When he's on the cross. He knows what it's like to experience isolation, abandonment, rejection, to have things said about him that aren't true, things that done that aren't fair, physical pain, he knows that. He knows your pain. He knows your need for cleansing. In fact, you go on to what, he, what happens in this passage. It's somewhat poetic, the way that it's written in the literature, but it's so practical in what actually happens. In verse 45, it says this. He tells the guy not to go and tell anybody, right? And we kind of laugh like, oh, how could you not tell somebody you were cured from leprosy? You didn't have fingers, now you have fingers. You didn't have eyes, now you have eyes. How do you not tell somebody that? Instead, verse 45, he went out and he began to talk freely, spreading the news, but here's the key. It's the second part of verse 45. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. Wait a minute. Who in this passage is not supposed to be able to go into a town? That's the leper. Do you know what he does for the leper? He changed spots with him. You know what Jesus did for you? He left heaven and came to this earth so that when you leave this earth, you could go to heaven. He came to this place who was without sin and became your sin so that you could leave this place as his righteousness. He traded spots with you. He traded spots in this passage. With when the leper comes to him, Luke tells us, he's, Jesus is inside a town, and the leper, he breaks all the rules, and he comes into the town, and then Jesus says, you, now I can't come into a town because all these people, I can't even do anything. There's so many people crowding around me. I've got to stay out in remote villages. I've got to stay out in isolation. Trade spots with this guy. He knows your pain. He traded spots with you. He was reaching out to you when he reached out his arms on the cross. and got nailed to the cross because he's dying for your sins. That's the compassion. And what does he continually do to his disciples? Those of you who've experienced that love, I'm talking to you now. He's continually telling his disciples, love this way. See, you're going to love, love the way that you've been loved. For, or in John chapter 15 and verse 12, he just pops it up there. I don't have to quote it. He just tells them, love the way that you've been loved. Well, Peter comes to him, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus, how much do I have to forgive somebody? And maybe Peter was thinking about somebody he needed to forgive, and he thought he was big time. I bet his chest was puffed out. Seven times. What does Jesus say? 70 times 7, which is saying to him, you don't stop. The way you've been forgiven, Peter, you forgive that way. Unlimited, without restrictions, unbound kind of forgiveness, kind of love. And so I just pause and ask you this. Who in your life do you hold back love from? Maybe they're difficult to love. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker or a family member. Maybe they've caused you pain, and so they, they haven't earned it, or they took away their right to it, or whatever. And aren't so glad you weren't loved that way about Jesus? Who do you restrict your love with? Maybe it's a people group. As Americans, there's certain people where we don't have to, we don't have to love ISIS, right? We can be, I mean, we're not supposed to be racist among color of skin, but we can be racist to them because they try to hurt us. Well, do you know what Jesus did? He died for us while we were his enemies, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. What kind of love have we experienced? Unrestricted kind of love. And so what does Jesus challenge people to do? do that kind of love? One time in Luke chapter 10, a guy comes to him who's an expert in the Bible, and he says to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And I love Jesus. He would have done excellent at one of the debates. 
what do you say the answer is? Jesus says back to the guy. The guy says, well, love God and love other people. And Jesus says, you're right. Ding, ding, ding. 10,000 stars for that guy. Stars don't mean anything, by the way. Sorry. No. Elementary school teachers, they mean something. Everybody else, it doesn't matter. And then the guy, Luke tells us, tries to justify himself, feel good about himself, uh, make it seem like everything's okay. And you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to narrow down the list. Who do I have to love? He says, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't answer his question. Which I love that about Jesus. He, he, may, he tells him, you're, asking, you're not even asking the right question. Jesus tells him a story. It's a popular story called the story of the Good Samaritan. But it's not a story of a guy who just gives his shirt off his own back. It's just like a nice guy. If you read the story closely, what you see is Jesus starts off with two bad examples of the guys that would be most likely to show an unrestricted kind of love. A priest. It's like his job to love people. But when he sees the guy on the road, he gets on the other side of the street. and gets, it's, it's inconvenient. I don't have time for that. Plus, it's this guy. Then you see... A Levite, he doesn't do it. Then you see a guy who would essentially be a racist terrorist. We are Samaritan. It sounds like a good thing. Like there's ministries named Samaritan and all that kind of stuff. A Samaritan then, that was not a good thing. And he comes down the road, and what does he do? He feels compassion on the man. Read the passage. And he goes over at his own cost and his own sacrifice. He puts the other person first and does what's best for the other person. And then at the end of the story, what Jesus says to the guy is Jesus changes the question. Not who is your neighbor. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37. He says to the guy, expert in the Bible, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the fellow who fell into the hands of the robbers? So the robber, the guy who got robbed, he's out. Priest, Levite, Samaritan. Who do you think it is? The guy's so racist he can't even say the word Samaritan. Look at his answer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go be like that guy. You know what Jesus is telling the guy? Go get a new heart. You know what Jesus does? When he cleanses us, he gives us a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, you have a heart of stone. The new covenant will be that I'll give you a heart of flesh. What does Jesus say to his disciples in the Last Supper? This is the new covenant. I'm giving you a new heart now. Those of you who've experienced my love, you now are getting a capacity to begin to love. So who do you hold back love from? Because it's about more than just caring about that person. It's about more than just compassion. Notice in our passage, Jesus is filled with compassion, but he goes beyond just being filled with compassion, and he takes action. Because a love without limits, it's attractive, it's unrestricted, but it goes beyond just those things. It does something. It takes action. Like James says, don't just look in the mirror and forget what you look like. And then faith, you've got to go do something with your faith. And so you hear the word, you've got to do something with the word that you hear. Jesus does something. He puts his compassion and action. Look at what he did in verse 41 again. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. Why? I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the man is clean. Now we know, because we've read enough of the Bible before, we've read enough of the Bible even in Mark so far, just in this series. Jesus doesn't have to touch anything. When he calms the storm, he doesn't put his hand out on the wave and go, calm down waves, calm down. Smooths it all out. When he casts out a demon, he doesn't grab the demon by the throat, throw him out of the guy. He says, get out, shut up, get out, be calm. His words are powerful enough to heal this leprosy. He could have just said to the man, be clean. But he reaches out and he touches a man who hasn't been touched in years. Do you know why? Because he's putting his compassion into action. He touches the man. Have you experienced the cleansing touch of Jesus Christ where he's tangibly expressed himself in your life? 
Maybe from another person. I remember one time I was with a pastor and um, he was with an HIV patient and the HIV patient was crying and he reached out and wiped her tears. And later he said to me, never miss the opportunity to touch a sick person. But you know what it looks like for Jesus to put his love into action? It's him going to the cross. It's verse 45 when he tells the guy, don't say anything. And the guy goes and says stuff and now Jesus is the one who has to go live out in the desert. And trade spots with you. What does it look like for you to demonstrate love to someone else? Now, some of you can't. You haven't received that love. Then what you, the application for you today is you need to receive that cleansing. Confess your sins. He's faithful. He's just. He died for your sins. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. If you've experienced that love, though, then what does God want you to do as a result of this? Because he doesn't just want you to know how much he loves you. He doesn't want you just to know that you should do something. I want you to do something. So what do we do about the word of God? What do we do about what we've learned? How are we different and what tangible steps do we take? And there are unlimited possible applications. Maybe it has something to do with the person that you've been holding love back from. Maybe it's a whole group of people that you need to reach out to. My wife found a guy yesterday who cares for refugees. Who's caring for refugees? Some of you in here, you were an outsider. I wonder what it's like for the leper who's been healed. The next time he comes across a leper and some dude's yelling out, unclean, unclean, does he become a snob and think to himself, I'm glad I'm not that guy anymore? Or does he get filled with compassion? Some of you have had abortions. Do you know that you can minister to people that are thinking about having abortions in a way unlike others? Some of you, you've been the outcast. Then what about the outcasts in our community? Some of you know what it's like to be that student at school no one's talking to. Every school has them. So if you're a teacher and you're a student, what are you doing to reach out to those people? Do you know there are people that are brought here, women that are brought to this city to be sex trafficked in this city? Do you know what that means? That means there's clientele. There's a market, supply and demand. There's a strip club like three minutes from here. Do we as a church even acknowledge that? Or do you drive? I didn't even, I'm so pious, I didn't even see that it was there. Lion. You know it's there. I'm not saying you went. Ladies, what do you do to reach out to the women there? Guys, you care about the men that pull in that parking lot. What do we do? In your cup holders today, each one of you have a little card there. That's not a Valentine's Day card from your church to you, by the way. Um, that is for you to make an application of today's message. There's something unique about making a tangible application. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm, the worship team's going to come. They're going to play a song about God's love for us. And while they're playing that song, I want to challenge you just to write down, what does God want you to do? Take a tangible action step as a result of this message. And what you'll notice on that card there is it's actually um, a self-addressed postcard. And so I want to ask you to put your address on there. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to bring it forward and put it in these baskets. And uh, what we're going to do as a church is we're going to Pray over these cards as elders, as uh, staff in our church. We're going to take these cards this week. We're going to pray over them and um, pray for you because we want to partner in this. We're a church family. It isn't just something, just you better go do this. No, we should be loving our community. We've been loved this way, and so we should be reaching out tangible expressions of this. It's not just hearers of the word of God, but doers of the word of God. How can we express a love that's attractive to outside of this, that Maybe you're not at a place that's unrestricted in your love. I'll tell you, I felt like such a hypocrite preparing this message because I know that my love is limited. So then I just ask myself the question, why is it limited? By my experiences, by my expectations from other people? What is it limits it? And God, you're doing a work, just grow me. Maybe I'm not to the point of unlimited, but how can I love more? 
And so then in first service, I wrote down what I felt like the Lord was speaking to my heart. And you come and you turn it in here, and then we're going to mail it back to you. And the idea with that is, oftentimes you'll leave a service like this, you might think, oh, I'm just going to stick it in my Bible, they don't need to waste postage on it or whatever, and, and you leave. But then it gets stuck in your Bible, and then you forget about because life starts happening, and you get busy, or you maybe toss it out after a while. It's like you had good intentions, you meant to do it, but you're not saying you're a bad person. And so we're going to mail it back to you, and we're just going to trust the postal system that they're going to deliver to you the day that's the perfect time for you to receive this note back and for the person that you're supposed to demonstrate this love to to experience this love. And so, like I said, the worship team's going to play some music, and I'm just going to challenge you. Write down what is God speaking to your heart that he wants you to do as a tangible expression of your love for someone else. And maybe some of you haven't experienced that love. And just write on the card, I need to trust Jesus as my Savior. I need to experience his cleansing. I wanna, I'm unclean. That means you're, you're ready to receive. If you acknowledge your uncleanness, you're ready to receive the cleansing of Jesus Christ. And so I ask Jesus to be your Savior.